we are continuing to walk through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And Paul is building on the foundation of the first three chapters in which he laid out, this is who you are in Christ. This is your identity. And now he's being very concrete in giving us details of what it looks like to live out that identity in holiness. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, Do not be partners with them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we have the privilege of peeking in on Paul, writing to these dearly beloved people in Ephesus. And we believe that you, through that same spirit who inspired Paul, desire for us to hear these words as spoken to us. So speak your truth. Reveal it to eyes opened to see as the Spirit enables. The spiritual eyes. That we might see your holiness. That we might glory in your splendor and reflect that to one another, and to the watching world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know about you, but I would love to simply read through verse 2 and call it a day. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. Amen. Lovely little word. Let's go home feeling good about ourselves. Love, love, love. But you and I know you can't get healthy if you're only eating right while you're smoking like a factory and taking drugs. You need to say yes to what is good, but you also need to say no to what is not only unhealthy, but what will kill you. And it's no exaggeration to say that Paul is writing about life and death in these warnings between verses 3 and 7. This morning, we're only going to focus on Paul's warning against sexual immorality. Note to parents at a start. Though you may prefer to avoid this topic, please hear me. 
Your children are exposed to destructive, explicit, soul-eroding messages and images about sexuality far younger than you'd like to admit. They need to hear the church speaking in a redemptive way about sexuality. It's not a dirty word. Is it scary in today's world? Yeah. But your discomfort, I need to hear this as much as you do, your discomfort does not diminish your God-assigned responsibility to actively shepherd your kids instead of assuming that somehow, magically, they'll, they'll understand and embrace what God has to say about sex. Note to everyone, this message will be very much out of the ordinary if you are a regular here at GRC. I'm not going to be interacting with the details of the text nearly as much as you're used to, and I'm used to. And that makes this a a little bit more of a, um, uh, not an uncomfortable one, but just an out of the ordinary kind of message for me. It might feel more like a talk than a sermon, but I just didn't think that we could talk about personal holiness in sexuality while ignoring the society-level messages about sexuality that are reshaping the values and beliefs of multiple generations of our families in the span of a couple of decades. So while Paul's definitely talking to uh, particular people in a particular church about individual sexual morality… At least this morning, we're going to apply this to what's going on in our society. And if you might quibble with me afterwards that, you know, Peter, I'm not sure that was in the text. I might not push back, but I still think this is a, a word flowing from the truth of God's word that we need to hear and consider in today's world. You know, it's pretty typical these days to hear uh, from critics of the church, I don't get why Christians are so obsessed with sex. I've heard that several times. I've read that a lot of times. And if there's any truth to that, it's because the entire world is obsessed with sex. You can't watch a soap commercial without some measure of sex, skin, curves, beautiful person in the shower, enjoying that shower in a way that normal people who take real showers don't enjoy. I've never had that experience, have you? It's just soap. Even family sitcoms are littered with sexual messages. You can't avoid that at 8 p.m. on broadcast TV, if that even means anything anymore. What used to be X-rated, at least an element, is now almost standard in our movies, sometimes what we call gratuitously, for no apparent reason in the narrative except to stimulate the eye and sell a few more tickets. So if the Christian church is focused on sex, it's because a new sexual revolution threatens to undermine God's perfect design for relationships, for families, for our bodies. Three quick examples of this. We could have dozens. Three quick examples. Pornography is destroying male-female relationships. And I'm not just talking romantic ones. I'm talking about the, the normal interactions that should be healthy in any community, family, extended family, 
neighborhood. And pornography is especially destroying marriages. More men, on average, are enslaved in addiction to pornography. Second example, the so-called freedom to be true to yourself and express your sexuality however you please. It is an open rejection of God's holy character. The choice is quickly becoming either follow God or follow your sexual freedom. That's why the church is so focused on sex while the world is obsessed with it. It's threatening the, the very foundation of the church. Last example, billion-dollar business empires have suddenly sprung up based on the Instagram snapshots of half-naked women who post themselves for, stereotypically, girls and young women to gawk at, men as well, but it's convincing our young females that the chase of fleeting beauty is the ideal and that it can somehow address insecurity and inadequacy and loneliness and emotional longing. All of it surrounds us. All of it threatens to unravel what was designed by God to be a precious gift, strengthening families and strengthening society. Instead, people are lonelier than ever, People are more addicted than ever to virtual, digital worlds, and issues of sexuality are the strongest attack that the church is facing, not in the next generation, but now. So the church, which has been given God's truth for light and life in the midst of darkness and death, has a responsibility to speak a message of rescue and freedom and salvation. That's what we need to do increasingly. In verse 3, Paul warns against sexual immorality, which is the translation of a single Greek word in the original uh, Greek language in which the Bible was written, the New Testament was written, and the word is porneia. It's a very familiar root, porneia. That's sexual immorality. It refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage. Paul is basically saying, don't stray from God's perfect design for sexuality. What's God's perfect design? We need to look at God's character in order to find the basis for what we call the biblical sex ethic. And again, this list could be long. I'll just give you three uh, traits of God that translate directly into how we are to relate in a healthy way. First, God is covenantal. I didn't mean for three C's. It just worked out that way. God is covenantal. What does that mean? That, that means His relationship with His people is based on promises that He has made. And so, sexuality only flourishes under God's blessing within the covenant of marriage, within a committed, promise-based, lifelong relationship. You know, there's, there's something incredibly risky to, to bearing oneself physically or emotionally to another person because it risks rejection. When you bear oneself spiritually to God, 
what is he going to do? He, he knows all things. He, he sees right through your facade of a good person. He knows everything you've ever thought and said and acted upon, even if it's hidden to most people who think you're a pretty cleaned up person. When you bear yourself to God, you risk rejection. When you bear yourself to another human being, physically and emotionally, flaws and warts and sins and all, what will they think of you? But acceptance and affirmation, in spite of your flaws and your sinfulness, that is the essence of gospel love, which God displays, which marriage should reflect. There's something incredibly risky, but there's something incredibly um, rich about this idea of bearing oneself. And the risk is managed, it's blessed within a covenantal relationship, a promise-based, committed relationship. God is covenantal. Secondly, God is complementary with an E. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, unity with diversity. Of marriage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, the two shall become one flesh. Diversity becomes unity. And Jesus strengthens this picture of unity when he quotes Genesis 2 in Matthew 19 and adds this redundantly, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. If that's unity, here's diversity again. God created humanity as male and female in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. You know, no other people group in the history of the world, I don't have data or research behind this, I'm pretty sure it's true, no other people groups in the history of the world have ever conceived of gender as a chosen identity. Does the fallenness of our world today create confusion sometimes? Absolutely. But that cries out for redemption, not for acceptance and affirmation. God's design of different humanity, diversity, uh, different anatomy, sorry, diversity, enables a man and a woman to come together in a unique, one-flesh manner, which is connected to the truth that God is creator. And he enables a man and a woman to participate by creating new life through their complementary bodies. We're different. But when a man and a woman come together in the covenant of marriage, they become one flesh, literally, and that enables us to participate in God's creative work. Last C, God is caring, which leads him to sacrificial generosity. Sex enables flourishing when it's defined by other-centered serving, by giving to another. Later on in uh, Ephesians 5, Paul will write this, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? And gave himself up for her. That's also in the very second verse of chapter 5 that I already read. Self-sacrificial love is the highest goal for every relationship, but especially in the sexual intimacy of marriage. In contrast, Casual sex is not about giving to another. It's about getting what you want and only receiving affirmation from another when you have what they want. It cheapens sexual intimacy by making it transactional 
and purely physical. Let me add this. Premarital sex, even within an engaged relationship, is always and also porneia, which Paul says there must not be even a hint, verse 3, because your physical union is not yet matched by a promise. It isn't yet matched by the spiritual and the emotional and the social oneness. But when you maintain chastity, this is what you say to one another, even in an engaged relationship. You are worth denying self. I promise now not to enjoy what isn't mine to properly enjoy. And that's directly connected to the marital vow and the wedding ceremony, which will pretty much say, I will never look elsewhere to enjoy what isn't mine to enjoy. If you can't make that promise before marriage, the promise you're making during the wedding ceremony for the rest of your relationship is weakened. Premarital sex always erodes trust for that reason, even if both of you want the same thing. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. All of this rests on the key verse describing the creation of humanity. Again, Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. We were perfectly designed by God to reflect who He is. That's why twice in the image of God, He created them. This is, we are image bearers. We are reflectors of who God is. And when we live as He designed us to live, we experience flourishing under His blessing. Second thought, revolution means redesign. Three points are shorter as we go, don't worry. When it comes to the biblical sex ethic, there has been nothing less than a revolution over the last half century. And some would say that the sexual revolution of the 60s pales in comparison to what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years. Here's a prime example in the dramatic shift of political will regarding gay marriage. Just a few points here. In 1996, during Bill Clinton's first term as president, he signed the Defense of Marriage Act which defined marriage as between one man and one woman, scandalous today, and barred same-sex marriage from being recognized at the federal level. I don't know about you, I forgot that, that it was Clinton who signed DOMA. 1996, not that long ago. When Barack Obama ran for his Senate seat in Illinois in 2004, he opposed gay marriage, citing his religious traditions as the main reason. 2004, not that long ago. Hillary Clinton in the same year, 2004, in a Senate floor speech, she spoke of the fundamental bedrock principle that marriage exists between a man and a woman. These are leaders who would later applaud gay marriage. I'm not picking on the Democrats. I'm simply pointing out the the incredible seismic shift that has happened in 15 years. They resisted 
supporting gay marriage only 15 years ago because of the political risk, because that's not what Americans supported only 15 years ago. But the tide changed dramatically and suddenly, leading to the 2015 Supreme Court ruling that same-sex marriage was a constitutional right. Revolution. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Revolution continues. Cornell University's political union recently invited a woman to represent a pro-life stance at an abortion debate. They invited her. They knew she was going to speak as a pro-life activist. Not, not an activist, a, a proponent. But before the event, organizers discovered, horror, that she actually had the audacity to believe two things, that sexual activity should be reserved for marriage, no pornea, and that marriage was defined by God as the union of one man and one woman. Those two views happen to agree with the supermajority of cultures and religious traditions across 99.9% of recorded human history. Again, no research behind that. I might be off by a few percentage points. Fifteen years ago, that was just called old-fashioned. What's it called today? This is what uh, Cornell did. They disinvited her last week saying that, quote, this is her words, having someone on campus who believed the way I did was tantamount to allowing a racist to speak who held pro-slavery and pro-Holocaust views. Wow. Old-fashioned has become equivalent to cheering on the gassing of Jews by the millions? This is a revolution. Do you realize this? In response, Robert George, a Princeton University prominent professor holding the chair that Woodrow Wilson used to hold, he shared her post and he wrote this, Evidently, no Catholic, Evangelical Protestant, Eastern Orthodox Christian, Orthodox Jew, or Muslim who believes what his or her tradition of faith teaches about sex and marriage is permitted to engage in debate at the Cornell Political Union. Even someone who, following thinkers like Plato, Aristotle, and Plutarch, holds to traditional morality on philosophical grounds without the benefit of scriptural revelation, someone who's not a Christian, someone who doesn't believe in the Bible, Even they are ineligible to be a debater. If Plato or Aristotle were around today, they would be barred. Think about that for a second. This is how the revolution, this is where the revolution has led. One more picture of revolution. Our daughter's high school soccer team showed up for an away game last fall, only to discover that school allowed their students to identify as any gender they chose, which meant that half the team sure looked like a bunch of dudes. (laughs) Our girls walked off the field and forfeited, by the way. I didn't expect that, but as a dad, that is so grievous. I have two sons and a daughter. It's grievous that this is what this has come to. 
I can't imagine that anyone just 10 or 15 years ago could have ever predicted that binary would become a dirty word. The idea that you're born a boy or a girl, blue or pink, two words you're waiting for the doctor or the nurse or the midwife to announce. How have we gotten here? It's a cultural revolution. And what would Paul say? Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. This may make you uncomfortable if you were talking about it at the coffee station in the office or outside for pickup after school or at the playground, but This is a revolution that threatens the very foundation of the church. And Paul says, let not there be even a hint of sexual immorality. And let no one deceive you with empty words. Some of you are starting to accept these messages as truth. That's deadly. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to think that these revolutionary ideas make sense, sound respectable. They will destroy you. These powerful social currents threaten to shame you for believing that God has spoken His authoritative and loving truth for our benefit. You are and I are tempted to feel shame for believing these things. A a woman who is respectable in her field is disinvited and accused of being a racist and pro-Holocaust for believing these things. Verse 6 continues with this. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things... God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. More political incorrectness. Wow. That's incredibly offensive in today's world. People who don't even believe in God are outraged that anyone would believe this kind of stuff. That God's wrath is coming on those who are disobedient. But here's the thing. This isn't a deity who has created arbitrary rules to take away any pleasure or any enjoyment out of life. There's no delight in divine justice. It's built into creation. What do I mean by that? If God is the source of life, which He is, as the creator and sustainer of life, then to reject God is to embrace death. It's built into creation. If God's creational design, the way He intended everything to be and flourish, if that design flows from His perfect wisdom because He knows best and longs for your best, then to reject God is to embrace chaos instead of harmony. It's to embrace breakdown instead of healing. It is to embrace ugliness instead of beauty. It's built into creation. Wrath, we don't like that word. It's simply justice. 
It's God properly, righteously allowing sin's deadly and destructive consequences to come upon those who insist on embracing it and holding tight to it. Last thought, gospel renewal. How do we wrap up this weighty message? Two thoughts. Remember that Paul is writing to Christians who used to walk in darkness, who used to live in death. Ephesians chapter 2, first three, four verses highlight that for us. And then he says again in verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He didn't say you acted darkly. You were dark. You marinated in this death. But now you are light. Our world, folks, listen to me. Our world may be experiencing revolution, but the gospel is working transformation. That's our only hope. The world may be experiencing revolution, and that's scary. You look around, especially if you're a parent with little ones, and you wonder what in the world is going to be the case for, for, for them when they grow to adulthood. The world may be experiencing revolution, but the gospel still this day is working transformation. Jesus is risen. The grave cannot hold on to you. Because yours, Jesus, is the victory. Let no one deceive you with empty words. But Jesus is risen is the most full phrase you could ever cling to. Paul says, be very careful then, later on, verse 15, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Last thought. Paul specifically calls greed idolatry. Verse 6, verse 5. But sexual immorality, like every sin, is also fundamentally a worship disorder. It's making something more important than God. It's defining for yourself, and not trusting God, what brings joy, meaning, acceptance, ultimate satisfaction. What hope is there? But God, Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. But God, the antidote is always and only faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who makes us alive with him and enables us to taste how wide and long and high and deep is this body and soul satisfying love that Jesus offers you. Embrace it and love life. Let's pray. God, Though the foundations of our society seem like they're, tr- they're crumbling, Jesus, you are the church's one foundation. 
the sands of time may be sinking. But Jesus, you are our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. Our society may be undergoing revolution, but Jesus, you make possible transformation. And we pray that not only for ourselves, that that would would only increase and deepen and affect every part of our lives, but we pray it for our neighborhoods, for Bergen County, for this country, for our world. The gospel would go forth and change lives from death to life, from darkness to light. It's only possible because you, Jesus, are risen. We pray this in your name. Amen.